0: You're listening to the Resurgent ATL Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. Has everybody had a great week? Yeah, right. Yes. Well, I want to tell you that this is just an act of obedience this morning. So you're just going to love me, and I just appreciate your love for me and um, and whatnot. But you can probably guess that part of the reason I'm doing this is because the other three guys were out of town all week. <laughs> So, I'm not jealous, I'm just, you know, kind of giving Chris a hard time because I'm really excited that you guys got to go. It looked exciting and I'll go another time. And if y'all get a chance to go out there, you should go because it's quite an experience and it's actually just really life-changing. But let's move forward and get started today. Have y'all been enjoying the sessions on Foundations of Honor? Yeah, me too. It's been really, really great, really impactful. But, um, you know, we started out with Jason, who talked to us about what is honor, and then Craig talked to us about cultivating abundance mindsets, and then last week, Chris shared with us about um, honoring long-term relationships, and I mean, to me, Chris didn't hear, what I was going to tell him, that was a really great message. I think it was one that we could kind of soak on for a couple of weeks, because, I mean, it even kind of stepped on my toes. You know, I was like, ooh, that's some stuff. And I was kind of proud of him because I can honestly say just being, you know, in his life for 30 years, that he's someone who could probably speak that that message with some authority because he's done the work and he's, you know, he's really committed to the things that he said. It wasn't just something out of the book that he said, oh, this, this is what we're talking about next. So, um, anyway, on that note, that is what we're kind of doing is we're taking... Danny Silk's study on um, Foundations of Honor. It's called Building a Powerful Community. And we're just kind of breaking it down into um, each kind of session and just kind of going through it as a body. And I love it that it feels like just kind of a family group this morning because of the subject that I'm talking about, which is empowering those around you. And I feel like who do we empower the most? The people that we're closest to and the people who are really just family. So y'all just really feel like family. And another book I do want to point out is The Cultural Honor by Danny Silk. How many people have read this? This book is life-changing. And I've heard more stories about people saying, this is how I found out about, this is what made me change and pursue more, was reading this book. And um, if you have a chance to order it, I mean, I think you can find it on Amazon, Culture of Honor, Danny Silk. Anyway, so in case you haven't gotten the gist so far, a culture of honor is where people live free, they value, they have a high value for relationships, and they um, celebrate the destiny that God has on their lives and on the lives of others around them. And at the heart of a culture of honor is freedom. And I think Jason talked about freedom quite a bit, but... You know, when we first experienced this culture, we, we loved the freedom, but what we were really drawn to was the empowerment. And the first time we kind of experienced it was actually through uh, finding Bethel Atlanta. And, um, you know, I think I told this a few weeks ago that I came from a very kind of religious background, a very controlling background, and that the environment that we were in before we found This culture of honor was also just very controlling. And um, the pastor led the worship. The pastor spoke the message. He was often the only one who ever gave a prophetic word. And he was the one who was the prayer team. And kind of at at the end of our time there, um, I I remember he called us up and he wanted us to help him pray for the teenagers because at the time we were um, youth leaders. And he wanted us to come up and pray over the teenagers at the end of the service. And what ended up happening is we were following behind him as he laid hands on each individual teenager and prayed over them. And we left out of there feeling just so, I don't know if this is even a word, unempowered. And honestly, we just felt in a way dishonored and not trusted to even lead the people that he had put before us to (coughs) lead And our time there just became so unfulfilling for us and for what we felt like God's call was on our life. And we got to this place where um, church just wasn't life-giving anymore, and we really got to a place where we were just done doing church. And I don't know how long it was that we didn't do church, (laughs) but Chris heard about this house church, and I was like... No, I'm not doing that. I was so totally not in the mood for house church. Like I wanted something more established because let's just be honest. At this point in time, we were kind of just going to church for our kids. And I wanted something established for our kids. And I came from like a really big youth group, you know, like 100, 200 kids. We had a youth choir. We traveled. We did, And I wanted something. If we were going to do this, Because we were just unsatisfied. We knew we needed to keep our kids in church. I wanted something established for the kids. So anyway, I say all that to say, he found out about this house church. And um, he went all by himself because we weren't going. I just didn't want to do anything about it. So he went, and he came back, and he was like, you have to come. And let me just kind of preface it at this because at the time, Bethel wasn't known like it is now. Because we're talking like maybe 14 years ago. It wasn't really heard of. Like a lot of people probably at least on that side of the world maybe had heard of it. But internet wasn't even what it is now. Like you weren't just going to get on YouTube and find out about Bethel. It wasn't all over TV, Facebook. We didn't have any of this, you know, technology that we have today. As a matter of fact, we were still passing around the CDs or the tapes. Like, if you got a hold of a good message, you'd be like, oh, listen to the CD. You're going to love this. You know, and we were just kind of in that phase. So, Bethel was like not really unheard of. Jesus' culture actually were still teenagers in a youth group. Right. You know, they weren't like traveling. Like, we didn't know. And Chris was like, we're going to go to this house church. It's called Bethel. And I was like, and I'm just embarrassed to say this. I was like, that kind of sounds like a religious name. I'm just was like, Bethel? Like, I don't know. The house church? Like, I just wasn't feeling it. And so um, he convinces us to go. And he takes us to this place. It's just this open field. We have to drive down this dirt road. We have to park on this gravel lot where the grass springs are like up to our knees. Then we have to trek down a trail, trail through the woods. And when we got to the other side of the woods, we were picked up by a golf cart and we were taken to this house far in the woods. And that was like, Holy moly, you know, what have we gotten ourselves into? Like we had not prepared the kids. Do not drink the Kool-Aid. Like, right? We were like, what have we gotten ourselves into? And I'm not trusted this man who went the week before and came back all sappy and crying and like it was the best thing ever. And I'm like, okay, Lord. So we get there and you know, we go, we go upstairs. <laughs> to this room that's, like, above a three-car garage. So it's kind of big, but we're talking 75 to 100 people cram packed in this room. Like, they didn't have the chairs out because you had to worship. And when worship was over, everybody came and stuck the chairs out because there just wasn't room. So it's that kind of thing. But, you know, from the moment we walked in, we, our lives were just incredibly impacted. And, you know, people were giving us prophetic words and people were getting up and they were sharing testimonies of um, times that they were at work and got a, 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 not a prophetic word, but a word of knowledge. thank you. They were getting a word of knowledge and seeing somebody at work healed. Or they were out at the grocery store and seeing somebody with a sling on their hand and they're stopping and praying for them and seeing them healed. And they were talking about outreaches and treasure hunts and outreaches that they went on with... Um, Uh, like a homeless ministry and like sex trafficking, rescuing. I'd never even really heard of that. I mean, just story after story after story. We're talking first week here. Just everything was just amazing. And what we noticed and what we were drawn to the most is how empowered everybody was. These people were empowered, and they were going beyond the four walls of the church, and they were doing the stuff. And, you know, what I call the stuff is like, Raising the dead, healing the sick, cleansing the lepers, da-da-da-da, you know, doing the stuff. And our lives were just never the same. And when we left there, like, we were talking 90 to nothing all the way home. Our kids were, I think, like, 7 or 8, maybe 11 and 12, so 8, 12. And they were even articulating, wow, these people are empowered. They're allowing young people to be on the worship team. They're allowing people to go to these treasure hunts. I mean, they were noticing, too. Like, we as parents were not having to point these things out to them. And so what it was for us is we were, drawn, we were drawn to being empowered. And like I said, I don't think we really even missed a service for the next 10 years. Like, we were just full all in. And so, you know, as we're there in this new culture, this new stream for us, of course we loved being empowered. But we started to notice that this was a culture of freedom. And while freedom was really exciting, at times it was really uncomfortable, especially for someone who came from a really controlling environment. And, you know, we noticed as we were there, really even at the beginning, year after year after year, that there were kind of three sets of people, maybe more, but three that were obvious to me. And there was one group that were people that were managing freedom really well. They were doing it well. But then there was this group of people who were taking freedom to the far extreme, like taking it too far, and just making messes everywhere, right? And we even developed this little phrase of, just because you can doesn't mean you should. You know, we were saying, you know, we were saying, hey, this culture doesn't mean that you can just run around and do whatever you want to for the sake of freedom. But instead, we were saying, you know, we needed this understanding ourselves that it wasn't where we allowed people to have, to, to create chaos, but what it is, is that we're giving people the opportunity to discover their true capacity for self-control, for responsibility, and then in that, they have their own revelation and opportunity that they need to grow toward the freedom that God desires for each one of his children. I had to read that because I didn't want to mess it up. <laughs> okay. So what this, uh, let's say, culture freedom, what it does, giving people freedom, it gives them the opportunity to discover for themselves their capacity for self-control and their capacity for responsibility, right? And then in that, they get the revelation and the opportunity that they need to grow in the freedom that God desires for all of his children. He wants us to all be free. And then there was another group of people And these are the people who they would come in and they would experience this great amount of freedom. And they possibly even loved it for a while, but they didn't last. They just didn't stick around. And they would find themselves right back in this place where they came from. A place of control and maybe even religiosity, familiarity, because sometimes control feels comfortable. But you know, when the children of Israel were in bondage... When they were in slavery, all they wanted was to be free, and they longed for it, they cried out for it, they prayed about it. And then as soon as they got it, every time something got hard, they wanted to go back to Egypt. They wanted to go back to being slaves again. I want to look at that. This is in Numbers in chapter 11. And they're complaining about not having meat to eat. And it says, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we had in Egypt at no cost. And in my little annotations on the Bible, I wrote, really, no cost? Because what about the cost of being a slave? And then a little bit down further, chapter 14, they said, if only we had died in Egypt. I mean, really? Are you kidding me? (laughs) So now you'd rather be dead. And then it says later, or if only we had died in the wilderness. And then they get even smarter, about four chapters, not four chapters, four verses down, they said, I know, we should choose a leader to go back to Egypt, to take us back to Egypt. And I just, I mean, I know it's easy for us to find that comical because we're not going through the trials and tribulations, but really, do we want, do we love control that much? that we don't want to go back to being free. Do you know that they were standing right in front of their promise being fulfilled, but they would rather go back to being slaves because there was comfort, there was convenience, there was familiarity, routine, knowing, always knowing what to expect. And, um, oh, here's one. Always knowing where their meat came from. Because now they're being forced to... Trusting God for their provision yeah. when before they're having to trust. They're just trusting a man yeah. And it was happening consistently. They might have been working for it, but it was coming and um, And you know what now they're having to take responsibility for their lives and There is freedom requires responsibility mm-hmm. So you're probably going well in fact you're gonna talk about empowering others. Are you talking about all this control? Well, what is the opposite of being in control and controlling others? It's being powerful and empowering others. And, you know, the culture of honor is not giving the church leaders more control. As a matter of fact, you know, Danny says when he first wrote this book, The Culture of Honor, when it was first published, he said pastors would call him and reach out to him and ask him to come. And he they were saying, you got to come and teach my people how to honor me better. Yeah. And he was like, um, did you read the book? <laughs> like, that's not what you <laughs> say But you know, it's actually about getting rid of control. It's about cultivating responsibility, cultivating self-control, cultivating freedom. And it's about being powerful, and it's about giving power away. And, you know, when we were in the early days of being at Bethel, that's what we were doing. We were being empowered and learning how to handle and manage freedom for ourselves. And we found we needed a lot of grace in that. And we also found that we needed to extend a lot of grace to the other people around us. Have you noticed that in controlling environments, control stems from fear? Yeah. Um, 1 John 4.18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears, fears is not made perfect in love. You know, when God was moving the children of Israel toward the fulfillment of their promise, he continued to tell them, Do not fear. And you'll see this kind of um, common thread all throughout the wilderness process of do not fear, be not afraid, be not dismayed, be of courage. And it just goes on and on. You know, when people sin or people make messes, we get fearful. And what do we want to do? We want to control. And then what do we do? How do we respond? Usually we react with punishment And fear can cause us to just be flat out crazy in the presence of sin. (laughs) Do you know, you know what I learned about being, from being a parent? You know what I've learned about from having kids? Say it that way. What have I learned from having kids? That I am not in control. (laughs) Right? And these poor kids of mine So often in their lives, I punished out of a fear of not being in control, and with an attitude of, you better not make me look bad, right? I mean, it's embarrassing, but true, right? And um, poor them, in your defense, they lived in the bubble, not only of Chris and I were always leaders in the church right so they were in this bubble of they needed to not make their parents look bad at church because people expect you to look a certain way and have everything in order and have your kids in order and have everything in control but then they also had i'm a school teacher and they come to school with me every day, 3k to 5th grade and by goodness they better not make me look bad in front of my principal or from all of my peers and all of my teacher friends right so they just kind of have this double whammy somehow they survived it all they're pretty good <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> my parents' day and age, if you think about their generation, so much of their identity was wrapped up in their ability to control their kids and keep their kids well-behaved. And so I had this kind of perspective that I felt like I was a bad parent if I didn't have them under control. And really, I don't even know if it was that. I think I had um, the fear of, that people thought look like a bad parent if I didn't have things in control. And I wanted to come up with this great story about the fear of messes causing you to be crazy in the presence of fear, because I know I've reacted crazy a lot. But I feel like, too, like, that's just, that's not, I mean, I can honestly say I think that that's not who I am anymore, so I think I've suppressed a lot of it. I should have asked y'all, because y'all probably, (laughs) they probably have some really great stories, but I don't want to, I don't want to expose myself. So I just, I did think of one little story that's like not too embarrassing to tell. And I think it kind of can go along with, with this. But um, just about the fear of messes and, and acting crazy, doing crazy is what sort of doing crazy. So um, let me back up with this. First, this is when we first moved to Georgia. So we were moving from a different state to a new state. And I was really a culture shock. Like I was just like what have we done? Everything is more different than I thought. I was already controlled by fear everything I did I was always fearful just about everything, but anyway, so keep that in mind. So I take my kids to Chuck E. Cheese and um, Sorry, Tristan, I'm gonna tell something on you, but it's not embarrassing because you're like three and you don't even remember But Tristan's <laughs> probably about three years old and like I said, it, I mean, I didn't even really want to be there, but well, I don't even know why we were there. But anyway, it, it, was, it was really busy. It was probably a birthday party or something. We had to go. But anyway, so it was really crowded. And I just remember looking up and seeing Tristan, who's about three, running across the room, kind of toward my direction. And he has this cup of tokens in his hand. Like a cup of tokens, I did not buy him. And so, he's running with all his might. (laughs) Sorry, buddy. And he's running with all his might. And I look up further, and there's this woman behind him (laughs) chasing him. And it's probably, like, the woman who probably bought the tokens for her little girl. And so, she's chasing him. She's going to get these tokens, right? And so, Getting closer and closer and closer to him. Tristan takes this that cup and he goes, <laughs> <laughs> smart, right? Like, really smart. His thought is: I'm gonna scatter the tokens, right? She's gonna stop and pick them up, and I'm gonna be free. I'm gonna run and I'm gonna make it. And <laughs> so, do you know what I did? <laughs> Mortified and I'm not kidding like I thought oh my god this woman is going to kill me like she's going to come to the bathroom and like kill me with a gun She's going to kill me I'm really thinking that I'm like disowning I'm pretending he's not my child I. (laughs) I mean is that not acting crazy in the midst of sin It's just stupidity really But I'm going to move forward because I just wanted y'all to have something to laugh at me about. But you know what was modeled for me in the church when someone sinned or messed up? We hid it. We kept it quiet. We swept it under the rug. And God forbid if they were in leadership or position because then we just stripped them of their leadership. We're stripped them of their positions. And, you know, when we punish people, we're telling them that they're powerless to change. And we're telling them that we, they are powerless to take responsibility for their behavior. And really, isn't that what God came to get rid of? And, you know, Jesus was not afraid of sin. He was not afraid of sinners. He was not afraid of people's messes. The Pharisees were. But Jesus was the solution. And we carry the solution to all of the world's problems on the inside of us. Because Jesus is the remedy Jesus was powerful, and we need to be powerful in the midst of sin, and we need to lead people into the presence of God so that they can find the answers to life's problems. And you mean, am I really going to just abandon my child in the midst of his sin and his mistake and his mess, or am I going to lead him to God? Am I going to lead him to the solution? You know, God empowered the children of Israel. I love Joshua one eight. This is really where he's talking to Joshua. And he says, be strong, be very courageous. And further down, he says, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So you see this thread again. He's saying, do not be afraid. And then he tells him, he gives him some tools. He said, don't be afraid. And then take these tools. And he says, this is my word. I want you to meditate on it day and night, and then I want you to do all that's written in it. So he tells him, don't be afraid. He gives him the tools, and then the third thing is he empowers them. He says, then you will make your way prosperous, and you will have success. Moses also empowered the people. You know, he couldn't enter into the promised land, but he prayed an empowering prayer over the people. He says, go in, take the land, and may heaven rain down dew on you, and may your enemies fall before you. You know, he empowered the people from his heart to go to a place that he couldn't go. I love that so much. Because how many of us can really empower the others around us to go where we can't go without jealousy? Um, so I had to switch gears from my need to control. And my always reacting in fear, especially when it came to my kids messing up or whatever. And I had to start acting powerful. And it was a process. You can ask them. It wasn't something that just changed overnight. But this was a very long process for me. But, you know, Chris and I, we just made this decision. We kind of came to this conclusion that, you know, I'm going to make some messes. He's going to make some messes. The kids are going to make some messes. But we were going to hang on to one truth. We were going to do whatever it took that nothing else mattered. But this one thing, that we would protect and we would, um, what is the word I'm looking for? We would protect and maintain our heart connection with them at all costs. And, um... We were going to do our best to train them to be powerful because we have such a great value for them. And just like Moses, we want them to go where we can't go. And we truly do want our ceiling to be their floor. You know, another aspect of empowerment was Jesus. Um, the story about the mother of James and John, you know, she tells Jesus, Hey, in your kingdom, I want my kids to sit in honor next to you. And Jesus is like, do you really know what you're saying here? And just a little bit after that, in Matthew 20, 25 and 26, he decided to gather all his disciples together. And he says, you know, the rulers of this world lord it over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But with you, it's going to be different. He says, "Whatever, whoever wants to be a leader among you must first be your servant. Cool. So, you know, we're talking about empowering people. We kind of have to take a step back and say, what does that really mean? Because I think everybody has this different idea of empowerment. I think some people think, oh, I'm going to be empowered when I get a position, or I'm going to feel empowered when I get the pulpit, or I'm going to feel empowered when I get a particular title that I want. It kind of looks like Jesus is saying, "Uh, I think it means when you serve others, right? And Jesus. Didn't come to be served; but he came to serve. And in um, Galatians says, "It is for freedom that he set us free." And Jesus—that's what he did. He came and he set people free. He sent them, and you see it all through the New Testament of him sending people. One of my favorites is the um, Mary Magdalene, the first woman that Jesus. I was say ran into whenever he raised from the dead the first person that he encountered was Mary Magdalene and he sent her he said go go tell the disciples that I've risen from the dead he commissioned her but even better than that he empowered her because he empowered her to take back her voice that had been stolen from her in the original sin in the garden when a when woman lost her voice so he empowered people He trusted people. I mean, Judas was on his team. He trusted people, and better than anything is he believed in people. And, uh, you know, Jesus, um, he valued people to such a degree that they argued over who was the greatest and who was uh, loved the most. And I think I picture Jesus just being that kind of person who loved everybody so much. He valued people so much that they all believed they were the most important person in his life. And more than anything, I think he really did model unto the least of these. Yes. And he had such a high value for people. So in order to value people, we, uh, or in order to empower people, we have to show value for them. So we're looking at foundations because what, we're building a culture of honor, we're building a powerful communication, I mean, a community. Our foundation for today would need to be that we're building today is valuing people. And you might say, well, what does that have to do with empowerment? Communicating value and demonstrating value for, people's, for people empowers them to bring their best to the surface. So when we empower people, we're causing them to bring their best to the surface. Remember the phrase, look for the gold in others? And we're taught in prophetic ministry that what are we doing? We're calling out the gold in others. So I'm going to give you just three little points, the real quick little bullet points about how do we value people well. And there's I mean, there's lots of ways that we know that we show people value. But I'm going to give you three that I think we can kind of cling to. The first one is get to know one another. seems so basic. We do this through conversation, through hanging out with one another, witnessing one another's lives, observation, sharing experiences, building heart connection, and that's one reason we really um, feel strongly about revive groups because in order to value one another, we have to get to know one another. And one thing that we've done as a family and as a team, as an extended team, is we've taken the strength finders test. Because you know, not only do you find out about your strengths, but something that's really powerful is finding out about the strengths of the people who are close to you and finding out about how your strengths are kind of interwoven and how they flow together and help one another. And it's just a great way to to really know the people around you. The next thing we need to do is trust people. So we need to know them, and then we need to trust people. This is kind of hard because trust isn't just something you do even just through observing people, but it really comes through friction and conflict and that opportunity when you have the opportunity to dishonor or to honor. And um, you kind of have to have some of those tough times to really realize, oh, I can trust. I can trust these people. They can trust me. We can trust each other well. And you know, trust is built through vulnerability and authenticity. And when we reciprocate vulnerability and authenticity with those people, um, we build it when we don't compete with one another. That, can, that one can be kind of touchy. Um, you know, we don't make we don't make accusations against one another to gain favor. And this one, you know, you kind of see this one in the church. You see this one probably in the business world. I'm not there. But in the education system as well. And it probably looks like something like this. If I go to my principal and I give her all the dirt on some other teachers so that I get favor with her, you see, I'm trying to elevate my favor by, um, what is the word? Uh, Yes, diminishing, devaluing others. And that doesn't build trust in that environment, does it? Another thing that we need to do is we don't cap people. We don't put lids on them. You know, instead, we need to be people's launching pads. We need to celebrate them. We need to be their best supporter, their cheerleader in their successes. And we need to champion their dreams. And one thing we need to do, we need to prophesy over them and release them into their identity and destiny. And the last thing about building trust, this is kind of a good one is we have to make room for other people's mistakes. And we have to create an environment where people feel believed in even when they fail. Yeah. And Danny has a really funny story, you'll have to listen to it one time, about a big failure that he had, but it was one of the very first times he spoke at Bill Johnson's previous church was at Weaverville. He totally messed it up. He was going to show a movie clip, and the movie clip had like a whole bunch of profanity in it. And he was like, oh notice that was there you know and of course he like does the message but he like after the service like he runs off like he's like oh my god I'm never gonna be asked to speak again it's a big mess like he knew he messed up he didn't need somebody to lecture him about it he knew he messed up but he runs into the bill bill in the back in the hallway or something and, and of course he's like oh my god I'm gonna get it and bill goes hey I need you to speak again next Sunday night are you free And, like, he just totally turned it around and empowered him. He's like, I'm not going to let that be your taste in your mouth. Like, I'm going to champion you even when you fail. And then the third thing we need to do, so we need to know people. We need to trust people. We need to show appreciation for people. And, um, you know, we feel valued when we're affirmed and validated and appreciated. And we have to appreciate other people's strengths even when they're different than ours. And we have to appreciate their strengths when we don't understand them, when we don't understand their behavior, we don't understand their needs, and we don't understand their gifts. And another one is that we need to appreciate them when they are strong in an area that I'm weak without jealousy. And that's a hard one. That's, again, with that no competition, no self-promotion. So... When people are known, trusted, and appreciated, they are empowered. And how do you know? There's an effect. There is some fruit of empowering others. And the first fruit is that they always offer their best in the relationship. They offer their best in their role, in the environment. Another fruit that we see when we empower people is productivity increases. See, think about the productivity that was happening for us when we were at the environment where the pastor was the only one empowered, and then versus the new environment where we went everyone was empowered and everyone was outside the four walls of the church doing the stuff, praying for the sick, healing the sick, how much productivity was taking place there. And then the fruit of empowering people causes people, or you see it because you see people beginning to develop their own strengths. And people begin to think and act like powerful people, and they're no longer dependent on me or you or others around them to fix their mistakes. And another fruit of being uh, creating a powerful environment is that in that environment, fear dissipates and love grows. You know, the forefront of the kingdom culture is love and relationship. So, we're gonna end with this. The, la- the, the core value for today, right? The core value that we're going to leave out of here today is that we empower people when we value them through knowing, trusting, and appreciating them. And where have we heard this before? Resurgent ATL's mission statement: We want to create a place. Let me down. Gonna make you all chance it before we leave here. So our mission statement is. Yes, where have we heard this before? <laughs> Good job, boys and girls. Empowering <laughs> <Okay. So. laughs> you to be powerful. So, yeah, what well, we really, I mean, from day one, we created this mission from day one. And you helped with it, Tony, because you said we were talking, He goes, there you go. Right there is what you believe, it's what you do. And what is it? We wanted to create a place where people feel valued and known and loved extravagantly and empowered to pursue their dreams and destinies. And you know, in order, it's going to take powerful people empowering others to see the fruition of thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For more resources and information about Resurgent ATL, please visit our website.